Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mary McCormick uh, from the University College Hospital NHS Trust in London. And the reason for this podcast, we're really very, very excited to uh, speak about the results. Um, this is going to be a discussion on a randomized phase three trial of induction chemotherapy followed by chemoradiation compared with chemoradiation alone in locally advanced cervical cancer, the GCIG interlace trial. Mary, so, so, uh, so good to speak with you. Thank you so much for obviously accepting our invitation to speak about the interlace trial. And once again, uh, congratulations for the immense amount of work and, and dedication and effort that you have put into the study. Uh, having had a uh, Previous meetings with you in the GCIG, I know that you were you were incredibly uh, persistent, and and of course, obviously, uh, we all saw the value of this study. So we're so happy that it is complete, and uh, really excited to speak with you about it. Thank you, Pedro, and it's a pleasure to uh, participate in this podcast. Well, Mary, I um, wanted to get through uh, a number of questions, of course, obviously about the study. Um, but I wanted to start by discussing um, if you can talk to our audience about the background and the state of therapy for locally advanced cervical cancer when you decided to embark on this study. Okay, thank you. So um, the study opened in 2012. Um, that was our first patient in. So obviously the planning went on a little bit behind the scenes for a couple of years before that, and we had to do a, a phase two study. So where we were at really is if we go back to 99, when we all adopted cisplatin uh, concomitant with radiation, having uh, seen the publications from uh, the five big trials in the States um, that showed that this improved outcome and reduced the risk of um, dying from cervical cancer. But then there seemed to be a little bit of a stalemate through the 2000s and there wasn't um, nothing further happened. And whilst this was a great advance, uh, the meta-analysis that was published, I think, in about um, 2003, 2004, um, showed uh, that um, the five-year survival had improved really by about 6%, from 60 to 66%. So a bit less than what we thought from the original studies. But what this really meant was that obviously still a large proportion of our patients patients were relapsing and dying from cervical cancer. So that really uh, sort of got us thinking, well, what can we do? Is there anything else? Is there another approach that we can look at? And um, we'd seen the meta-analysis of uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy of all those studies. I went back to look at those again because I thought, why didn't they work? Um, number one. Number two, of course, there was that uh, thought-provoking analysis that suggested that if you gave uh, short-cycle treatment, um, that those trials had a better outcome. But they were truly multimodality trials, and some of those patients had had surgery as well, So, and there were small numbers. Um, nevertheless, I mean, a lot of those trials were small, so it got us thinking that we should revisit that again. And of course, by now, um, one of the big differences was that we had um, taxane. So we know that taxanes as a single agent, they're the most, um, they, they have the highest response as a single agent in cervical cancer. So it seemed sensible to introduce those. We also sort of knew at that time that carboplatin and cisplatin were more or less equivalent. And we thought we'll probably get less neurotoxicity with, well, with carboplatin. We're going to be using cis with the chemo rads. Um, 
And we decided that the most dose dense approach was weekly treatment. And then the decision really was, well, how many weeks do we go for? So how much is enough? Um, and we settled on six weeks to try and balance uh, getting the treatment in in a shortish overall time. Um, and of course, uh, the balancing the potential for toxicity um, against trying not to compromise the chemo rads. So it's a difficult balance. But I think one of the other key things that we looked at was I went back and looked at those studies to see um, what was the interval between uh, chemotherapy and the start of radiation. And that wasn't controlled for in any of the studies. And in fact, um, it was up to 28 days and longer in some of the trials. So um, our thinking was that you may have negated any of the benefit that you would have derived with the chemotherapy by such a long interval prior to the radiation. So that really led us to the cervix two study, which was just simply a phase two study saying, is this approach feasible? Um, and we had just 46 patients uh, given weekly carboplatin and paclitaxel and followed immediately by chemo rads. And we did show that this was feasible. All the patients pretty well completed the treatment. But what we also showed was that there was a 70% response to the, ne to the neoadjuvant or induction phase of treatment when you assessed it on an MRI at the end of week six. This is actually quite a high response in a locally advanced group of patients. And of course, what we were able to show later on as we followed those patients up was that those that had responded where there was a demonstrable, measurable response, those patients had a better outcome. So the three-year PFS and, and, and OS um, uh, survival rates uh, were better than what we were seeing historically. They were sort of about 67%. And at that stage, we'd just recently done an audit in the UK in 2002, and five-year survival was pretty abysmal. It was sort of in the, in the sort of in the high 50s. Mm -hmm. um, so it certainly wasn't worse. So we thought, well, this approach is feasible. And then we had to uh, seek a funding for, uh, you know, for a phase three trial. And then, of course, um, you know, the rest we eventually opened. And then we had to fight quite long and hard to keep the funding for the 10 years so we could complete the study. Well, so fantastic. that's really the background. Yeah, thank you for that great introduction. And yes, and kudos to you again and your team for continuing to fight to keep this study uh, going. Um, so let us get on to the study design. And if you can just uh, outline to our audience on the randomization into the groups. Yeah, so we had um, as a phase three randomized study. Um, both arms received standard chemo radiation with cisplatin. And then the induction chemo arm, um, those patients were randomized, sorry, one-to-one. -one. Um, and in the IC arm, they received paclitaxel 80 milligrams per meter squared per week with carboplatin AUC2 for six weeks, um, followed um, in week seven by chemo radiation. And the chemo radiation was uh, identical in both arms. And can you tell uh, us we stratified. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So we included uh, patients at that stage. It was um, we weren't looking at nodal staging. It wasn't part of our staging. So it was 2008 FIGO staging that was used, and we included patients that were one um, B two but node positive, then one B three up to four A. We didn't include the three A's because there are lots of differences in how they're treated when there's disease at the introitus. So we didn't include those. Um, we stratified um, for stage, we stratified for uh, types of um, 
external beam radiation. We stratified for nodes and for tumor size um, so that our groups were nicely matched. Um, and as I said, we had, so that was a minimization stratification and we had um, equal numbers in both arms. So we recruited 250 patients into uh, both arms, 500 in total. Great. And um, if you can just re uh, review for us, what was the primary objective and the secondary endpoints of the study? So our primary, um, our primary endpoints uh, were both progression-free survival and overall survival. Um, and we had modified the protocol to allow for uh, a primary endpoint of PFS. So we, I'm not a statistician, so, um, but we used a hierarchical um, analysis uh, and we had to have uh, our PFS needed to meet its primary endpoint for PFS before we could actually analyze overall survival. And that allowed us to get a sort of an, an earlier, um, potential earlier readout, but as, as it uh, transpired, uh, you know the results, so we met both anyway. Yeah, and Mary, uh, in some of the discussions with with our our fellows, uh, um, one of the questions that came up as it pertains to the methodology, you talked a little bit about the stratification for a number of variables. Um, they were asking us whether you can expand as to why those variables, um, and and what do you stratify for those specifically. Well, we know um, tumor size is an important prognostic factor. And so larger tumors often have uh, a worse outcome. Um, we looked at uh, squamous versus non-squamous histology as well. And we also know that whilst most of our, our patients, about 70, 80% are gonna have squamous um, histology, the adenos often do badly. Um, so we wanted to look at that. Uh, we know that nodal status is a prognostic factor. So most of these factors that we stratified for are known variables that affect outcome. Yeah. And we and wanted to make sure we were balanced for those in both arms. Perfect. And uh, I know, obviously, we're all excited to hear of the results of the study. Can you uh, share um, results of the landmark interlaced trial before we get into some uh, questions on those results? Yes. So what we were able to show was that um, at a median follow up of uh, 64 months and with 146 progression free survival events, we had a hazard ratio for a PFS of 0 0.65 with a p-value of 0 0.013. And what this means in terms of five year progression free survival was that this was increased from 64% in the standard of care arm to 73% in the um, induction chemo arm. So that's a significant improvement. Similarly, with um, overall survival, we had 109 deaths and the hazard ratio was 0.61. Um, and this, again, was statistically significant with a p-value of 0 0.04. So we're seeing a 39% reduction in the risk of dying with this additional six weeks of treatment. And our overall survival was 72% in the standard of care arm and 80% our over survival rate of five years and 80% in the induction chemo arm. So this was an absolute improvement of 8% um, over um, the standard of care at five years. Excellent. Um, now, um, there's a number of questions that are turned in by the fellows in the journal, and uh, we'll start going through some of those specifically. Um, 
on the perhaps inclusion criteria or also on the results. The first question is from Beatriz Navarro. She's in uh, the Canary Islands. And she's asking, um, why was the uh, eligibility criteria for no lymph nodes above the aortic bifurcation on imaging uh, considered? Well, first of all, we know that patients with parotid lymph nodes do particularly badly. And there was a time, um, not all that long ago, when many people thought that, well, these patients actually have metastatic disease. Um, however, we couldn't, uh, you know, come to a consensus on how best to approach the treatment of those patients. It was also at the time before we were using um, IMRT as standard of care. So there were concerns about toxicity, additional bone marrow involvement. Uh, so for a number of reasons, um, those patients th along those lines were excluded. I would have liked to have included them, but, um, you know, we were a trial management group. So, um, you know, that was the decision of the group ultimately. And at the same time, if you recall, the Outback trial uh, was also uh, recruiting patients and they had um, also excluded patients with um, periotic nodal uh, metastasis. Um, so I guess, you know, we thought that at some point, if there was a meta-analysis, then the two groups are sort of, um, you know, the two trials were fairly similar in design, apart from chemo upfront versus at the end. Um, but that wasn't the reason we exclude the main reason, but it was a, it was a minor consideration. Excellent. But I have used the protocol for patients with periotic nodal involvement. So I want to say that I feel it is a valid approach for those mm -hmm. patients. Um, yeah. Yeah, excellent. Uh, this next question comes from Elena Olearo from Italy, and she talks about the main benefit of induction chemotherapy appears to be in the long-term period with significant differences for five-year uh, progression-free survival, overall survival. Uh, differences in, uh, are less relevant in the three-year analysis. Could you offer any explanation of the biological mechanism, perhaps, for these findings? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, and I mean, it may have something to do with, um, you know, sort of micrometastasis and um, the, the period of which that that sort of tends to emerge. And maybe, you know, that in the first three years, the standard of care is adequate treatment to keep those under control. Um, and because there wasn't a huge difference, um, a huge fall off, I should say, in the induction chemo arm between um, three years and five years. My suspicion is that the IC, the additional chemo is actually quite good at controlling that. And I think it's possible that then if they're controlled at three years, that those patients are probably long-term survivors. I mean, that's my, my thought, but who knows? <laughs> Very well. Um, this other question is also from uh, Ilaria uh, Capasso in Italy. She's um, interested in the location of recurrences. And she says, um, in addition to the survival benefit observed with induction uh, chemotherapy, when analyzing the pattern of recurrence, uh, the investigators observe a lower rate of distant recurrences in the induction chemotherapy, whereas the rate of local and pelvic recurrences were similar in the two treatment arms. Can you offer your thoughts as to why this might be the case? Well, I think we're treating um, probably with the IC, we're treating uh, micrometastasis at distant sites. 
Um, and I think if you've got, again, got small volume, um, undetectable by imaging metastasis and you're treating those early, um, then it's quite possible that that's sufficient, that amount of treatment and plus the cisplatin is going to be su sufficient to treat those patients with very small volume micromets. Mm -hmm. I suspect that's why. Yeah, and, and somewhat, I, I think, a uh, related question, uh, Elena Oliero asked about the nodal status. And, uh, mm. so, mm. you know, the two arms were balanced according to histology mm. and nodal status. Mm. Uh, are there any differences in terms of response to induction chemotherapy and the outcomes according to the nodal status? Well, that's one of the stratification factors, and we will talk about the outcome according to the stratification factors uh, at the next um, set of presentation, which will be um, at ESGO in March. Mm. So um, that's all to be revealed. <laughs> Very um, well. You know, so. it was sort of 50-50, the patients that had, it was nearly 50%, no positive, no negative, you know. Um, so my hunch is, and certainly uh, my expectation is that, that that they will have been, they will all have benefited. So definitely a, an invitation for Barcelona uh, to yes. uh, stay tuned. Um, Bella Jugeli from Georgia asks, um, was there a difference in results according to histotypes? And as an extension to that question, can we assume that these results are going to be similar in the other histotypes that were not included in the study? Well, I mean, 70% of the patients had squamous tumors. So the majority of the patients had squamous tumors. Again, that's one of the stratification factors. So we'll be able to have um, a look at that. Um, we'll have that data to present. Um, with respect to the other histotypes that weren't included, uh, we know that, you know, the neuroendocrine tumors, for example, um, generally behave very aggressively. But interestingly, you know, we uh, certainly in my practice, I treat those patients with uh, neoadjuvant chemo, but a bit like the lung patients and then chemo rads. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wouldn't advocate a, a change in therapy for those patients. Um, so it's it's a difficult one to say because of course they weren't part of the they weren't part of the trial. But adenos are a big, you know, there's there are a lot of different subtypes of adenos. So and we didn't split those out because then you're getting into tiny numbers. Mm -hmm. So I would certainly use it for all the adenos. Um, then obviously you can't. I wouldn't change practice for the neuroendocrines um, and the others. I think there's not enough evidence to say you should do anything other than what you would do for the vast majority of uh, patients with um, epithelial uh, cervical cancer. Excellent. Very well. Um, this question uh, from Josie Sewer in uh, Canada. Um, he asks, would induction chemotherapy remain superior if we were to exclude patients with stage three and four? Well, on that the staging that we used, most of the patients were stage 2B, but of course, a proportion of those, probably, you know, maybe 30 or 40% of those will have had positive nodes. Um, so they would now be stage 3. So it depends which, you know, stage 3 you're talking about. But um, if we just focus on the, the stage 2s, um, you know, we know that all stage 2s are not the same. Um, some patients with bulky tumors and uh, quite extensive parametrial invasion and invasion into the lower uterine segment. It doesn't change the stage, but those patients do badly. So I think, um, 
you know, there's no reason to to expect that, um, you know, that the two Bs aren't going to the two Bs aren't going to benefit because they were the most of the patients in the trial. Um, and I think even if we took the node positive ones out, the bulky Bs, bulky twos, I think would still benefit for sure. Excellent. A um, couple of questions from Sabrina Biamonte in um, in uh, Canada. I'll jump to the question regarding uh, brachytherapy. And um, she asked, would the magnitude of benefit still be observed if there's optimal brachytherapy used? Well, I mean, how do you define optimal treatment? Now, of course, we would say that, um, you know, you should use image-guided adaptive brachytherapy in uh, over 30% of our patients. That is what they did receive. But what we must remember is that the radiotherapy was balanced in both arms. And our survival data at five years is, um, you know, it's not significantly different from what's published by Embrace, where Embrace 1, where all the patients had image-guided adaptive brachytherapy. So I would say to anybody that says the radiotherapy was suboptimal or the brachytherapy was suboptimal, um, we QA'd that very carefully. Uh, we paid attention to the details. We looked at the contouring. Uh, we designed, we, we updated an atlas for everybody to use for contouring. Um, we reviewed all their, uh, their first two to three cases in real time. Um, and um, we looked at the, at how they, how the brachytherapy was delivered. And I think when you take, and the overall treatment time was really tight. Um, I mean, almost, you know, all our patients, I think that the median overall treatment time was 45 days, a tiny percentage exceeded 56 days, I think it was two or 3%. Mm -hmm. So if you think about how radiotherapy is delivered and the doses that we use, it's not all about the dose, it's important, but it's also about the overall treatment time and the pelvic control that one loses when you extend the overall treatment time by sort of any number of days beyond 56, frankly, you can negate the benefit of giving a higher dose. Would we give higher doses now? Would we be able to achieve higher doses? Yes, of course, we'll be able to achieve higher doses as anybody knows who delivers radiotherapy using image-guided, uh, the image-guided approach, because of course we can also use interstitial as well as um, you know interstitial needles. So we can pull the dose out laterally and we can uh, deliver higher doses and keep our, or, you know, the dose to the organs at risk with intolerance. So um, they're all of those advantages, but I don't see that as negating the benefit. And of course, if you think about just the brachytherapy and the, and the external radiation and how it was delivered our local um our local control rate our local and pelvic control rate was as good as embrace mm -hmm. so it was you know sort of i think what did we say our our relapses our local relapses were just 16 percent. so that's sort of uh 80 84 local control yes no absolutely so that, that and, uh... goes against that the concept that the brachytherapy or indeed the radiotherapy overall was not optimal yeah, and it's it's commendable the the forty five days of uh, of treatment in uh, in this this type of study, um, really uh, impressive. Um, next question, Delera Fugamali um, from Italy. Uh, she's asking adherence to cisplatinum um, had an association with high discontinuation rate um, due to adverse event. Um, does it have an impact on the final resorts? Is is there any strategies that we could use to reduce this risk? You know, that's an interesting question because um, the sort of the five cycles of cisplatin sort of evolved 
um, because we had all those big trials, the five five famous studies now. Uh, we had different chemo regimens. We had some that were three weekly. Then we had the weekly one. Um, so, you know, then we were using six cycles. Then we sort of, there was a thought that actually maybe you didn't need six. Five was adequate. Um, so how much is enough, cisplatin? I don't think we truly know the answer to that question. Um, but how can you, and, and it is true. I mean, there is more toxicity. I think anytime you add more drugs, you're going to get more toxicity, whether you add them up front or at the end. And um, we did have, I mean, a, a significant proportion of patients um, completed four cycles, you know, 90% in the standard of care arm and 85% in the um, induction chemo arm completed four cycles. And uh, what we would encourage or what we did encourage, but I, I can't say how well it was adhered to, was the use of GCSF. So what I do in my practice is um, I watch these patients, I watch their counts very closely. And if I start, if I see the white cell count and the neutrophil count start to slide, I get on with GCSF. So I don't wait for them to become neutropenic. I will treat them with a couple of doses of GCSF per week. Um, and of course, if the platelet count falls, then you, you you just have to wait for that to recover. But usually it was um, it was neutropenia more than anything else. Great. Um, Beatriz Navarro is asking about GI toxicity and mentions 12% uh, uh, diarrhea rates in uh, chemoradiation and 8% induction uh, group. Um, any any concerns uh, as it pertains to the two groups for GI toxicity? No, I think the non-heme toxicity we weren't concerned about, and I think it was pretty balanced. I don't know why there appears to be slightly more in one rather than the other. I mean, there's no real... There's no um no real reason that I can see for that. Um I think um, you know, the the GI toxicity rates are better with, you know, our with the way we deliver the treatment, obviously. Um, and you know, with even with 3D conformal compared with, you know, the old sort of um older um 2D approaches. Um and it's better again, of course, with um um IMRT. Um, so no, I can't really, um, explain that one. Very well. Um, I'll ask, uh, this question, uh, Mary, and since obviously taking advantage of having you as part of this discussion, um, before we get to the last two questions, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, any, what are your thoughts as it pertains to the results of the studies, um, in the setting of, uh, first world countries versus low and middle income countries? Well, of course, um, the drugs are available. They're cheap. We know the toxicity profile. And and I guess importantly now with the results of the interlace trial, we know that this approach works. What I would caution against is this idea that um, neoadjuvant chemotherapy or induction chemo, as I like to call it, um, is... Uh, an excuse or is it provides a rationale for delaying radiotherapy. It's not. So I would say to anybody where your resources are, are, are strained or where you have, um, you know, delays for access to radiotherapy, I would say find a slot for the radiotherapy first and then work backwards and start your induction chemo. Because we know this approach does not work 
if and it won't work because it hasn't worked in the past if you leave a gap and i think what's happening is i think you get tumor repopulation in that time and then i think those tumors are resistant to treatment and you actually um you know you disadvantage those patients so that's very important um i guess you know there are also thoughts about well should this be should this approach just be for the uh, low and middle income countries because guess what you know we've got lots of fancy new drugs and we've got immunotherapy we've got everything else so why would we want to use you know sort of uh, carboplatin and paclitaxel well i mean it's tried and tested and we have demonstrated a significant survival benefit the biggest improvement in outcome in the first line setting that we have seen since 1999 so that's one very good reason to use it um other people will say well maybe it doesn't work if you've got more advanced disease i couldn't see the logic for that quite frankly um i think if you've got and i know because we have used it in our own practice for patients with extensive pa nodal disease and we have long term survivors and we have published that only a case series, but nevertheless, it, it demonstrates and it confirms the principle that this works for patients with more advanced disease. And, you know, the patients are finished their treatment when they finish the, the brachytherapy. So they don't have to face another two years of attending clinics, hmm. um, you know, getting fed up with it, never mind the cost if they can afford it. And and quite frankly, I mean, much as I, I like the concept of um, immunotherapy, I just think it's not going to be one that uh, will be easily adopted in many settings. And it's not just in the low and middle income countries. You know, there are lots of um, uh, res resource constraints in different set in, in, in high income countries as well. So I think this will be a difficult, um, this will be, potentially a difficult sell, particularly with the good um, data that we have from Interlace. Fantastic. And I just have uh, two questions before we close. Uh, what do you see as the limitations of the uh, study? Well, obviously, I would have liked um, to have had more patients with more advanced disease. Um, so, you know, to have enriched it further for even higher risk patients. I'd like to have had patients with um, periotic nodal involvement. I quite like that, although we did have some humongously large tumors um, that were stage two and three. So as we all know, you can you can see Um I'd like, I guess, uh, I, I would have liked if all the patients had been treated throughout the study, if it had been done over a shorter period of time and we'd been able to treat everybody with IMRT and image-guided adaptive brachy. Although I really don't see that that would have us, uh, that would have significantly impacted the outcome for the study. Um, but, you know, it would have been nice to, and I guess maybe that's the advantage and the limitation of doing it over a longer period of time. Um that's really, I think those are the two main ones to be, uh, to be fair. Um, otherwise, uh, I, I, I think I would have liked, obviously, to have had perhaps more patients from uh, middle-income countries and from other health resource settings. But uh, it's always a challenge when you do an academic study. Uh, you can't take the funding uh, to your overseas sites, at least we couldn't with our UK funding from Cancer Research. And um, 
So it was there was a limitation in that sense. And I really would have liked if we'd been able to recruit from more from Asia. Um, we did get 10 in just a, as a sort of a pilot almost from India. But it was nice. That it, and the patients coped very well. So it was nice to know that in a small group in another setting. But it would have been lovely to have had more patients from um, South America. Well, uh, been great. Yes. So as a last question, we often ask... Um, how have the results of this study changed your clinical practice today? I think they've um, what they've finally done for me, even though I've, I've obviously been a fan of this approach quite clearly for a number of years, but they have cemented my view that um, this is a good treatment for our patients. Um, they tolerate it well with scalp cooling. There is minimal complete hair loss. And that's really important for young women. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they cope with the treatment well. It doesn't delay them having the radiation. So for me and for my patients and hopefully for the, the wider uh, population with this type of cervical cancer, I think it's a win-win. I just hope that it's sort of, um, if it is adopted, that there's particular attention paid to how the induction chemo is delivered and then just give your best quality standard radiation afterwards. Uh, because lots of people ask, well, what should we do differently? And is there any special approach with um, with the radiation part of it? And I'd say, no, just make sure you do it and do it really well. Um, and make sure if you have any evidence of any nodal involvement, when you come to do the RADS, you boost them. So that's what we did. We more or less looked and 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 encouraged people to treat those patients on the induction arm the same as you would have done if they hadn't had um, early chemotherapy. So you weren't compromising the radiotherapy or the volumes that you were treating. So um, and I just hope that we uh, that other women in other countries and other settings um, that many more patients will benefit from this approach, and hopefully it can be implemented fairly quickly. Well, Mary McCormick, thank you so, so much for this uh, opportunity to speak with you about the interlace. Uh, congratulations once again. I, I know that we, we in the community of gynecologic oncologists are, are so proud that you have completed this study and you succeeded. Uh, so I want to thank you. And of course, obviously, all of the collaborators in, in your study and the patients who, who participated. And I should add again, thank you for being such a, a great role model for all the female gynecologic oncologists as well. Thank you. Thank you, Pedro, and thanks uh, to the IJGC. Thanks a lot.